Hello, everyone around the world. Welcome to this special event on social safety nets and COVID-19. Can we protect food security and nutrition? This is part of IFPRI's COVID-19 virtual event series. You can find out more on IFPRI's COVID resources, analyses, and numerous blogs at our COVID Spotlight page at ifpri.org, or just Google IFPRI and COVID-19. I'm Dan Gilligan, Deputy Director of IFPRI's Poverty Health and Nutrition Division, and I will be moderating this event. We'd like to thank you for joining this virtual event live, and thank you to those of you who are watching this recording after the event. We're eager to hear from you. To participate in our Q&A session that will follow the brief presentations, please submit your questions on ifpri.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using hashtag AskIfpri on Twitter. For our friends from the media, if you have any specific queries or questions, please feel free to contact our media team. Their contact details are available on ifpri.org. So let's get started. The COVID-19 pandemic and subsequent lockdowns have created twin health and economic shocks that are staggering in their breadth and scale. While the pandemic has arrived later and slower in many lower and middle income countries, COVID-19 is threatening the lives and long-term livelihoods of millions of poor people, with estimates indicating that COVID-19 could increase extreme poverty below $1.90 a day by 70 million to 100 million people. Gains made in the fight against poverty, food insecurity, and malnutrition in this century are threatened, requiring a vigorous policy response. A centerpiece of that response has been an expansion of social safety nets. Many countries have provided beneficiaries with additional cash or food transfers and have added new programs during lockdowns or requirements for social distancing. Past if free research shows that social safety nets can help limit further harm among vulnerable populations by bolstering food security and assets and with the potential to protect child nutrition with effective program designs. This expansion of safety nets during the pandemic also faces significant challenges, including how to safely deliver food and cash transfers without increasing virus exposure, how to target newly vulnerable households, and how to adapt program designs to promote the food security of households and protect child nutritional status. Today, we'll hear about how social safety nets have been used to respond to COVID-19, the extent to which this response has addressed food security and nutrition, and opportunities and challenges going forward. Our speakers will provide a global overview, as well as profile the implementation experience and research evidence from Bangladesh and Ethiopia. These are two countries with extensive social safety net systems that IFPRI and its partners have studied for many years. We have an exciting program lined up for you. I'd like to call on Frank Place, director of the CGIAR research program on policies, institutions, and markets for some opening remarks. Frank? Thank you very much, Dan. I am pleased to provide a few introductory remarks for today's seminar on social safety nets and COVID-19, Can We Protect Food Security and Nutrition? Social protection is one of the main research themes in the Policies, Institutions, and Markets program because of the importance of social protection in meeting fundamental sustainable development goals on reduction of poverty, hunger, and malnutrition. I commend the many governments around the world who are strengthening their safety net systems and the many development agencies and organizations who contribute to their implementation. I equally appreciate the keen interest that they have shown in learning how to make their programs better by reaching the right people, delivering the right form of transfers, and attaining the results that they desire to see. Scientists that are associated with the PIM program 
that, that I am the director of, have been active participants in evidence generation on social protection programs and innovations. They have worked closely with governments in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, and with major international organizations such as the World Food Program and World Vision International. These collaborations are often in the form of long-term partnerships, such as with governments in Bangladesh and Ethiopia, countries that are featured in today's seminar. Social safety nets are important in all countries and at all times, but play a particularly important role in times of crisis such as we now face. It gives me great pleasure that PIM has co-organized this event with IFPRI, and I look forward to hearing the insights from this excellent panel. So back over to you, Dan. Uh, thanks, Frank. Thanks very much. Uh, our next speaker is Ugo Gentilini. Ugo is the global lead for social safety nets in the social protection and jobs global practice at the World Bank. Ugo, over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dan. Thank you, everyone, for organizing this great event. Uh, maybe if we could start directly from uh, the next slide, please. Uh, I think there is uh, little doubt that we are in the middle of one of the largest social protection scale-up efforts in modern history. Um, one, uh, one metric of that is just looking at the number of countries that have planned or introduced social protection measures in response to COVID, and that number has quadrupled in just a couple of months. You'll see on the left side of the, uh, the map, on the left side that you know, includes about 45 countries in late March, they increased to over 190 uh, in our uh, latest update on country responses, which is May 22. We're going to come up with uh, another update uh, tomorrow. Uh, next slide, please. Um, while it's coming out tomorrow, I still want to give you a preview uh, of uh, some of the numbers that we're going to present. And uh, as of Tuesday of this week, we have 988 uh, measures that are, are introduced as a response to COVID. And you can see that they keep growing even two months after we started uh, tracking, uh, tracking the measures. And those measures have been growing tenfold since uh, late March. Um, next slide, please. Um, we also went back at the database and looked at to what extent Oh, sorry, here is a, a little bit of proportion. Uh, most of the social protection response is social assistance, about 60% of it. And um, uh, about half of that volume includes cash transfers. There is a lot of action also on social insurance, including unemployment benefits, paid sick leave, but also on the labor markets, especially with subsidies. Next, next slide, please. Um, in terms of specific uh, food security and nutrition-oriented measures, we went back to the database and we're able to um, identify about 150 measures in 96, 96 countries. So about 15% of global measures uh, are related in some way to food consumption, to nutrition and to food security objectives. Next slide, please. Overall, um, we see that countries are adapting uh, their portfolio to COVID in several ways. They're making it easier for countries uh, to access benefits, they're increasing generosity, they're increasing the scale. And uh, overall, those, uh, those uh, adaptations tend to benefit about 1.7 billion people uh, in terms of social assistance. If we just look at cash transfers, those tend to benefit 
in those different ways, generosity coverage and administrative simplification, about 1.1 billion. And if we just look at coverage of cash transfers, that's over 900 million people. Next slide, please. So just a, more, a little bit more on cash. Um, the coverage of cash transfers at the moment is on average 12% of the population in the survey countries, uh, but it can go down to 2%, for example, in the case of Africa. They tend to be pretty generous, more than double the amount that was provided before COVID, but short term, less than three months in provision. Next slide, please. Um, and in terms of spending, I think that is generally in line with the level of spending that we saw in 2009, 2010, with the difference that that's overall spending at the end of the overall crisis. So we are probably here still at the beginning, um, and that amounts to about 0.6% of global GDP, but spending per capita can be pretty low. You could see in Africa, Middle East and North Africa, and South Asia, it's about four to $5 per capita. And for continents and regions like Africa, you'll see that they have the same level of spending as other two regions like MENA and, and South Asia, but they have almost double the level of undernourishment than regions like the Middle East. Uh, next slide, which is my last one. Um, I think we are all grappling with this question. Is this uh, um, augmented action in social protection, is it a bubble or is it helping to shift social protection provision towards a new equilibrium? Um, we are gathering a lot of data, but we are also trying now to get uh, deeper into some of the design and delivery choices that countries are taking and also starting to move from documentation of action to actual performance. And of course, uh, the extent to which those programs contribute to food security and nutrition is a central question and very much look forward to the discussion in the panel and from the audience. Over to you, Dan. Ugo, thank you very much. Um, I thought it was interesting that you said that only about 15% of programs currently have uh, a food security and nutrition focus. I'm expecting that as the pandemic moves even faster into uh, poor developing countries that that's going to have to expand. Uh, thank you. Our next speaker is Mamoon Rashid. He is a program and policy officer at World Food Program in Bangladesh. Mamoon, welcome and over to you. Mamoon, you're muted. I'm not hearing you. How about now? Hi, uh, thank you, Dan. Uh, Bangladesh has a rich history of implementing social safety net programs, and uh, World Food Program has been working closely with the government on the design and implementation of some of its social safety net for several decades. To respond to the coronavirus pandemic, government's approach is to combine new benefit with an expansion of several existing social safety net programs. For example, a one-time cash grants of $30 has been targeted to 5 million families who are out of social safety net coverage and uh, unemployed due to COVID. And programs such as disability allowance have been expanded and universalized. Uh, the government has identified those new beneficiaries uh, and verified their information using their national ID numbers and transferred cash benefit using mobile wallet to reduce risk of transmission. I will share two examples uh, where WFP has been supporting to the government. Uh, 
in modifying large scale social safety net programs that assist vulnerable households with pregnant and lactating women and children nationwide. Next slide, please. So uh, first we have uh, supported government uh, to modify uh, national school feeding program. Since the outbreak of coronavirus, uh, we realized that nearly 3 million children stopped receiving fortified biscuits due to school closures. Last month, WFP along with Ministry of Primary and Mass Education uh, developed a guideline to distribute take-home rations of the nutrient-fortified biscuits. Our partners uh, at the grassroots level uh, supported government in reaching the families while maintaining the necessary precautions of transmission. Each children received 50 packets of biscuits for two months. Uh, next slide, please. Um, we have also uh, working with the Ministry of Women and Children Affairs in implementing Mother and Child Benefit Program, under which uh, pregnant women receive monthly cash grants uh, of nearly $10 per month, along with nutrition counseling uh, for 36 months. So before coronavirus, um, pregnant women self-enrolled by visiting a local union information service center if they feel that they meet the eligibility criteria. Now, amid coronavirus, we have simplified uh, the process where women can send an SMS with their national ID number and mobile wallet information to the center for online registration, which then verified and approved by the local authority. And uh, following this management information system, the next month, government transferred the cash grants to those uh, women. In this particular program, um, we have also uh, redirected food rations that were actually purchased uh, as part of IFPRI's uh, planned pilot research under this program. Although the research was postponed due to COVID-19, we didn't want the food to go to waste during this critical time. So we have already distributed the food basket to about 3,000 pregnant women from poor families under this program. So uh, we learned from these two examples that it is possible to reach out to vulnerable household either with food or with cash if we have system in place. And, uh, and we also uh, observed that nutrition and access to diversity of food uh, for those households remain challenged due to the market disruption. It is also challenging to distribute perishable foods like fruits, vegetable, or animal source food. As a result, household diet are moving to more stable foods such as rice. Although some efforts are underway to address this, as I mentioned, the fortified biscuits uh, that we are provided as take-home rations uh, through the school feeding program contains 15 types of micronutrients. And the, the food that we have provided uh, to pregnant women under mother and child benefit program. We also have the fortified rice, which uh, contains six micronutrients. And WFP is also uh, working with government uh, to initiate some efforts so that we can send nutrition messages uh, using mobile phone as well. 
so these are some learning from bangladesh so thank you and back to you then Anmon, thanks so much. Um, those are really interesting uh, examples of adaptations from Bangladesh. I was particularly interested to hear about attempts to use technology to, um, to reach households to provide transfers and potentially to provide some nutrition messages. Uh, so that's wonderful. We're going to continue with our, our example in Bangladesh and bring in Akhtar Ahmed. Uh, Akhtar is Senior Research Fellow in the Poverty Health and Nutrition Division at IFPRI. Akhtar, welcome and over to you. Thank you, Dan. Coronavirus has taken a serious toll in Bangladesh. So how can we use social safety nets to address challenges from COVID-19? Next slide, please. Next slide, please. Thank you. There are extensive social safety nets in Bangladesh, and IFPI has conducted decades of research in this area. One example is a randomized control trial called the Transfer Modality Research Initiative, or TMRI, which was designed by IFPRI and implemented by WFP. The research asked, how can we design safety net to reduce household poverty, improve food security, and enhance child nutrition? TMRI assessed which would be most effective cash, food, or combining one of these transfers with a nutrition behavior change communication or BCC. After extremely poor women received program benefits for two years, the results showed that any kind of transfer, cash or food, significantly improved food security. Moreover, among children of women who received cash plus nutrition BCC, stunting reduced by three times the national average decline. Not only that, but four years after TMRI benefits start, we see that transfers plus BCC sustained improvements in food security. Next slide, please. Now, how can we ensure a safety net continue to protect food security and nutrition during COVID-19? Coronavirus has highlighted major gaps in the country's safety net system, namely overlooking the urban poor. So what does our research say what we need to do? While markets are disrupted and in-person contact is uh, restricted, there must be free distribution of food to households in urban slums or urban low-income areas, including some nutritious, non-perishable foods such as nutrient-fortified rice and pulses. In the medium to long term, food vouchers for nutritious food could be distributed to the poor, which use the normal food marketing system and eliminates the cost of commodity handling. Also, a nutrition-sensitive cash transfer program could be designed and implemented, including the in-person behavior change communication, if possible, or through mobile phone messaging. Next slide, please. 
what else we can identify and scale up programs that research has proven effective for example if this evaluation of major public works program in bangladesh found that they are very well targeted largely because they require manual labor uh, in uh, exchange of cash or food wage although these programs have mostly stopped due to the outbreak the government can make them unconditional safety nets for existing beneficiaries until the situation improves so no extra cash food or listing of beneficiaries are needed to to do this in closing research suggests that there are many opportunities to improve food security and nutrition through safety nets that require minimal additional effort i mentioned just a few of the many ways to uh, uh, reach those goals or to reach those uh, poor thank you and over to you dan thanks doctor thanks very much those are really um excellent examples great to hear uh the evidence from ifri research about how to bring um adapt programs for nutrition and also the the benefits of dropping conditionalities for now during the crisis uh, so thanks very much i'd like to remind all of you watching online that you can submit your brief questions on ifri.org facebook linkedin youtube or by using the hashtag askifpri on twitter uh we'll be coming to the q and a session soon uh so we're going to shift now from bangladesh over to have a couple of um examples and hear a bit more about ethiopia our next speaker is tigas mamo tigas is the spear project health and nutrition technical lead for world vision in ethiopia uh tigas welcome and over to you Tigas I'm not hearing you. Can you unmute? Sorry. Uh thank you Dan. Uh this is a social safety net program in uh, Ethiopia and we are working with the government to strengthen the PSNP for institution and resilience. Next slide. Next slide please the the PSNP program in Ethiopia is a flagship program and uh, it is significantly contribute to the reduction of poverty in the rural Ethiopia reaching over 8 million uh, food insecure families but if the covid-19 is going to uh, affect the poor the poor family uh, the the effect will be uh, going to be uh, hi so in cognizant of this the government of ethiopia uh, adopted the psnp program and uh, in terms of trying to continue to reach the targets beneficiary population next slide next slide please and uh, the adoption of this safety net program by the government of ethiopia are some of Uh, i picked some of the adoption the key adoption uh they did safe and timely transfer and advance payment 
Actually, uh, the COVID-19 risk is increased when the people are get together and then uh, the transfer site is the people were uh, coming together. So by uh, keeping the precaution measures and uh, like hand washing and using sanitizer and personal protective device and also keeping social distancing, they are transferring to keep safe them and uh, to, uh, to make them able to have enough amount of food for their families, they are giving them uh, the, the cash timely uh, without uh, affecting their uh, time and they also give them advance payment. The second one is they exempt from the public work. Public work, uh, the, the public work participants should do something like participate in the productive um, development programs, but in case of, uh, due to in response to COVID-19, they changed the, the, uh, the, the way they do the public work. Uh, in some cases, if there is no, the, the public work, if, if it's not uh, requiring number of people, they can do that, but if, the, if it requires a large number of uh, people, they just exempted from public work all the participants without affecting their entitlement. And the transfer will be continued for them. And the, the, the next one is the government enforced the social distancing and other preventive precautions or practice in public gathering places such as in market, churches, mosques, and uh, uh, different places. And the other uh, modification is done in livelihood transfer support. Uh, this should be reduced con congestion and the, the rise of market price by using different alternative markets in different places. And the other one is uh, shifting the public work uh, uh, behavioral communication uh, to the home visit awareness raising, uh, home uh, health extension worker and volunteer go home to home to raise the awareness of the people how to prevent themselves from COVID-19. And the other one is uh, currently uh, that they are also providing top up for to support the pregnant and uh, breast feeding women and female headed household in the urban uh, PSNB program. The one I, I, I already stated is the rural PSNB program. The next slide. Next slide, please. Uh, SPEAR, to support the government adoption uh, of uh, in response to COVID-19, SPEAR also made some of the program adaptation, like facilitating advanced transfer via distribution of two months of ration one at a time without changing the amount and the composition of the food we are giving them cereals, pulse and oil, to support the nutrition component and we're also providing them the same amount, giving them double distribution, two months at once, we already given the first one and we're also planning to, to give for the next one. And the other one is a capacity building in response to uh, uh, the, the, the COVID-19, the government staff capacity building in COVID response as well as in psychosocial support. And we're also supporting the home visit uh, nutrition counseling added the uh, precaution measures and we're also working on improved 
hand washing facilities and practice at public place and households. Previously, we are doing it at household only. Uh, next slide, please. Next slide. Uh, the SPEAR programming also uh, uh, helped the participant to be resilient and better prepared for COVID-19 with the opportunity of uh, introduction of saving and uh, loan access for the, the, for the participants during uh, uh, our work before and also the wash and nutrition message and also improving access of nutritious foods through uh, vegetable gardening and improved breed uh, poultry and community-based participatory uh, nutrition promotion. This is the uh, homegrown uh, feeding of children and also promoting simple hand washing uh, facility at household level. This uh, part of the program uh, supported uh, the, the uh, PSNP claim to better prepare and resilient for effect of COVID-19. Thank you. Thank you, Tigis. Um, that's <clears throat> really wonderful. It's um, interesting to hear about the adaptations of the program, the PSNP, the Productive Safety Net program in Ethiopia in this last round in the last few years had a, a stronger nutrition focus so it's interesting to hear that as the public work programs and those nutrition meetings were stopped they found other ways to try to get the nutrition messages to families and um, thank you so next i'd like to go over to jessica light she's research fellow in uh ifbris poverty health and nutrition division and she's going to talk further about evidence from ethiopia jessica over to you thank you dan so we at IFPRI have been working with World Vision to evaluate the effects of SPEAR over the last two years, and I'm going to share some findings today related to the COVID shock. Next slide, please. So in 2019, last year, following about a year of SPEAR implementation, we analyzed short-term effects of World Vision's programming in a sample of about 3,000 rural households. And this graph shows one of the outcomes we examined, whether the woman, the lead woman in the household, reports any savings. The first three bars, T1, T2, and T3, are all households that were exposed to SPEAR programming, receiving different combinations of L-STAR, which is Enhanced Livelihoods Program, and N-STAR, Enhanced Nutrition Programming. And the final column, T4, are households that were not included in SPEAR, but they are PSMP beneficiaries receiving base PSMP services. And what we can see here is that SPEAR had effectively stimulated a huge increase in reported female savings. So women exposed to SPEAR, between 60 and 70% of them reported savings compared to only 30% in the final group, which is approximately a doubling of the savings rate. Next slide, please. Here's another piece of data from our 2019 survey. Again, this is pre-COVID evidence about the effects of SPEAR, looking at acid accumulation by the household, specifically poultry. So SPEAR has had a substantial emphasis on accumulating animal assets through a number of different programmatic components. We can see here that particularly for households in the first two groups who are exposed to the enhanced livelihoods, L-STAR, there was a substantial increase in the reported number of poultry owned to between five and six, compared to only about two in the final arm of PSMP beneficiaries. So the number of poultry assets at least has about tripled due to SPEAR programming over the first year. Next slide, please. 
More recently, as of June 1st of this year, we've been reaching out to the same households in a phone survey to collect some short-term data about the effect of COVID-related shocks on their household. So we've surveyed 700 households to date. This is data from the last 10 days. You can see we started by querying them about the trajectory of their household income over roughly the last three and a half months since the period of lockdowns began. And we see overwhelming evidence that households have been seriously affected. So 80% of the households we've surveyed thus far report a decrease in income. And in the right column, we collected, the right graph, excuse me, we collected information about how they're coping. So what are the mechanisms that they're using to confront this decline in income? The most common, as you see, about 40% report that they are selling assets. And other very common mechanisms are receiving assistance, reducing consumption, relying on savings, and engaging in additional activities to generate income. So given the evidence I just showed, this seems particularly important because we know that households already exposed to SPEAR have both built up savings and built up their asset stocks. And evidence suggests they're now leaning on those mechanisms to confront the short-term decline in income that they're facing now because of COVID-related disruptions. Next slide, please. And finally, we've also posed our respondents a very simple question about their current stress level, whether it's between 1 and 10. And you can see here that a strong majority, so about 60%, report a maximum level of stress about kind of three months into this intense COVID period. So while not surprising, this suggests that the decline in income, the use of coping mechanisms, and other disruptions are exerting a serious toll on households. And this may be a channel for longer term effects on welfare and nutrition, <clears throat> particularly for households that have young children in the house. So moving forward and looking towards our longer term data collection, once we're able to survey households again, we're particularly interested in understanding what the effects of these short-term coping mechanisms are, and whether SPEAR as a program has assisted households in buffering themselves against shocks related to the COVID crisis. Thank you very much. Back to you, Dan. Uh, Jessica, thanks so much. Um, really appreciate to hear more about the evidence on the effectiveness of the SPEAR project and how it's helped households prepare or be better able to weather the shock of the pandemic. At this point, we'll now move to the Q&A portion of the program. Uh, we'd like to hear from as many of you as we can, so please uh, be brief with your questions when you type them in the chat box or using the hashtag AskIFRI on Twitter. And please feel free to share your name and institution or uh, where, you're, where you're writing from um, when you send in your question. I'll read one question at a time, and the relevant speaker will respond. I'll, I'll alert the speaker to... Um, let people know which one I'd like to answer the question. Um, please note that in some instances, and in the interest of time, we might have to consolidate some of your questions. And if another speaker has a, a point to add, um, they should just unmute and just jump in. So uh, thank you. Let me bring up then uh, the first question. Um, Ugo, this is a question for you from Marites Tionko. Um, she asks, how can we make uh, social safety nets more sustainable? So based on the evidence that you've seen, Ugo, with uh, the large number of the large run up in social safety net programs, um, what should we be thinking about sustainability here? It relates to your comment about whether this is a bubble or, or could uh, be longer lasting. Over to you, Ugo. 
Thank you. Thank you, Dean. And uh, that's uh, that's actually an excellent question. Um, uh, what we are seeing so far is that um, those uh, programs out there are being financed in a sort of an emergency mode. Uh, I think the IMF has done some uh, uh, great work in um, categorizing how those are uh, how those programs are financed, um, uh, including tapping state reserves, contingency funds, um, and other and other ways. So as uh, things uh, get better, it'd be important to to look at uh, uh, more sustainable ways of financing. There are uh, many ways and options uh, um, out there. I think in um, in principle, uh, looking at uh, the connection between uh, uh, energy and, and social protection might be an important one, especially um, you know kind of the energy subsidy reforms, especially now that prices energy prices are relatively low. One could look at how to better link, especially in fragile states the humanitarian and um, uh, the social protection agendas in ways that enhance coverage, but also uh, make those provisions more, more sustainable, better connecting domestic resource mobilization and, and social protection provision uh, from the get-go. Um, so those are all, uh, I think uh, it's, there is a, an important agenda out there in, um, in looking at those options, but it's also important in terms of mindset in approaching the question as there is a, a real cost for social protection, but it's also very important to look and demonstrate the economic multipliers and the benefits that stem from those provisions. International evidence shows multipliers between 0.8 to up to 2.6. So cash that goes to people goes into the economy. Um, so it's very important also as one looks at the options, also looking at the benefits that may stand from those uh, uh, from those transfers. Luca, thanks very much. Um, the next question is for Octor. Uh, this question comes from Anastasia Crespo, uh, uh, Project Innovate Newark. She asks, is there a difference in efficiency or impact on those in need between direct cash transfers or direct food distribution? I wonder if you could comment on that based on your evidence from Bangladesh. Just remind you to unmute, Doctor. Okay, so differences between uh, direct cash transfer and direct food transfer, we have, as I mentioned in my presentation of this uh, TMRI, we did not see really a difference there. Food and cash transfer, both are effective in terms of improving uh, household level food security, but just alone, food transfer or cash transfer do not, you know, uh, have impact according to our, uh, you know, evaluation of several safety net programs in Bangladesh. Alone, uh, cash or food do not improve child nutrition. So there you need to do something else. And what our TMRI showed that, you know, combining cash or food with uh, nutrition behavior change communication can really make a difference. So, so, so the, to answer the question, yes, both food and cash are quite effective in terms of uh, improving household level food security. Thank you. Great, thanks, Doctor. Um, the next question is for Tigist. This question, Tigist, this question comes from Melkamu Abdisa. 
The question is, do you believe the shifts in nutrition BCC sessions, the behavior change communication sessions, will be effective via home visits by health extension services? And, and maybe you could comment about how those um, sessions are being carried out in the midst of COVID um, when social distancing is needed. Okay. Uh, previously, this session was done at the public work site, maybe the people, maybe uh, 200 from uh, three, 30 to 200 sometimes. Uh, uh, so because of the COVID or the risk of infection, this is changed already stopped and changed to home visit. The home visit is uh, more stronger than the public work one because the, uh, the health extension worker as well as the voluntary is doing the home visit at home level and they give private space to discuss uh, their barriers and also uh, encourage them or help them to negotiate with uh, their solution for that specific problem. It also gives more opportunity to uh, discuss about the male engagement issues uh, during this home visit than the group uh, uh, public work. And uh, the follow-up is done by, uh, in our area, in SPIR, uh, area we are following with community uh, health uh, uh, facilitator so uh, it is so far it's 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 going well but in case of uh, the government most of the supervis supervisors are shifted their activity to uh, uh, covid response so uh, i don't know whether that is effective or Okay, thanks, Tigas. Thanks very much. Um, next, I want to come to uh, Mamoun. This is a question for you. So could you please speak more about uh, the nutrition mobile messages that you mentioned? So what kinds of messages are being sent and how are those being targeted? Yeah, thank you, Dan. Actually, the nutrition messages um, were disseminated in a courtyard session earlier uh, in the community. But um, after outbreak of COVID, um, uh, we have stopped uh, organizing those courtyard sessions. So our field worker um, uh, at local level, they are communicating the nutrition message with the households uh, that we earlier shared. So, uh, and also it is important, I mean, uh, the household who doesn't have mobile phone, or even the household who have mobile phone, but the owner of the mobile phone, if he is out of uh, household, that's really difficult to communicate um, uh, on the message. So the message we have usually disseminated uh, using um, the mobile phone is on the dietary patterns and also the information on uh, COVID, the sensitivity as well and also what additional diet they need to include uh, during this COVID time as well. So thank you, over to you then. Uh, thanks Mamun, thanks very much. So the next question I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna actually put this both to Jessica first and then to Octor. This question comes from Melcam in Canada. And it's this. So uh, for programs that have, the programs that we're discussing here, uh, have there been gender analyses done? And if so, how has this informed how those programs are carried out? So just wondering, um, starting with Jessica and then over to Octor, if you could talk about 
um, gender components of the research and how some of those findings have helped the program. Sure. So for SPEAR, we've certainly invested a lot of time and energy into analyzing gender components. So for example, I shared some findings about female savings, specifically at Midline. That was a case where we saw SPEAR was stimulating female savings specifically. There was no comparable effect for male savings. So that, of course, benefits the household, but we also believe it has benefits for a women's empowerment and their influence within the family. We also have looked at asset stocks for both men and women and found that, again, SPEAR was effective in not only increasing the total asset stock for the household, that's the result that I showed, but had a disproportionate effect on assets owned by females. One area where we found that the gendered effects were perhaps uh, less positive were that, was that men still seem to dominate the process of marketing. So when assets are sold, that is often a process and the associated income controlled by men. At least that's what our findings showed last year. So that's a lesson that we were able to share with uh, the program in order to enable uh, more, ref more reflection on how to encourage female participation in marketing. For the short-term COVID effects that I spoke later in the presentation, that's only our first survey, and so we've been only reaching men on the phone. It's more challenging to collect data from both men and women in a single phone call, but we're hopeful that in future rounds, we might also be able to reach women in these households and collect more information about gendered effects. Back to you, Dan. Uh, thanks, Jessica. Thanks very much. Um, Akhtar, I wonder if you could also comment on gender dimensions of the lessons. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. So again, I uh, I can go back to you know this uh, TMRI example that I provided. Uh, you know uh, the program was targeted to women. Uh, you know, we, uh, extremely poor women. And actually, in Bangladesh, most of the uh, safety net programs are targeted to women, except uh, there are some exceptions like uh, this WARS program called Employment Generation Program. For the poorest, which is a cash-based, uh, you know, public works program, there there is a quota for women, and that's uh, about 30% women. But other programs are mostly targeted to women. Now, in, in terms of impact, what uh, we found that uh, this TMRI, uh, cash, food, and BCC, that work that we did, we found that. Uh, you know, this gender-based violence or intimate partner violence was reduced by 54% even four years after the program stopped. So in 2018, we saw that effect, although the program stopped in 2014. So that is a remarkable, uh, you know, achievement. And that happened only for the, you know, uh, the, the component that combine cash with behavior change communication. Thank you. Akhtar, thanks very much. Um, Ugo, I'm gonna to come to you next. This is a question from Sikandra Kurdi at IFBRI. Sikandra asks, how strong, uh, how strong do you expect support to be from the World Bank and donor community for expanding social safety net programs in developing countries in response to COVID? Well, for the World Bank, it's uh, it's very strong. <laughs> um, I think there were there was uh, now a well-known uh, announcement of uh, 160 
billion for that, and uh, a, a large share is going for for uh, uh, enhancing uh, safety nets. Um, so we see that in uh, in a number of countries, some countries uh, were already supported uh, during uh, the first the first phase that was more health related. Uh, but we see more and more uh, countries um, that uh, uh, will uh, will receive support as part of this kind of second phase um, of of COVID response. Um, one one interesting aspect I think is uh, that um, uh, we know a lot of uh, what's uh, uh, what governments are doing um, and um, uh, how they are planning to um, introduce or expand their existing systems. We know probably a little less on um, how uh, programs are being supported um, by uh, non-state actors in uh, the whole humanitarian agenda. I think there is some interesting work that uh, CALP and uh, UNICEF uh, and others are doing to start uh, also mapping out that. And uh, that, I think, would nicely dovetail uh, what we know now in terms of what governments are doing and together they will provide a fuller picture of uh, what's going on uh, at country level as supported by the government and by and by their partners. Great, thanks Hugo. Uh, I have another question now that's I'm gonna bring to Tigist first and then to Mahmoud. So we get an example from a response from Ethiopia and a response on Bangladesh as well. The question is from Mace, uh, Salatre, sorry, apologies, Salatre. Um, the question is, targeting beneficiaries is crucial so that no poor families would be left behind and also to avoid leakage. Um, so in the context of COVID, how does Ethiopia and Bangladesh manage this concern? So maybe you could talk a bit about um, what you're aware of in terms of new effects on uh, new approaches to targeting during COVID. So we'll start with Tigist. Tigist, over to you. Uh, okay. Uh, in case of those uh, poor who are left uh, from the PSNP target, the government is well prepared by, uh, by creating food bank. There are different bank who are uh, prepared in this time throughout the country. Uh, uh, to for the for the for those poor who are affected by uh, COVID-19, uh, they are going to be benefit from that food bank. Currently, even they started for uh, those of uh, the people who are working as a daily laborer and who lost their labor and who who lost their job and also who uh, who lost their uh, some of their uh, incomes as well as their assets, they are going to, they are giving and distributing this uh, food from the food bank. And they are they also preparing themselves for the worst case scenario uh, by uh, uh, targeting as well as uh, providing those food from the food bank. This is apart from the PSNP program. The PSNP program is distributing all the components like the cash they are giving in advance and also the food component who are giving the NGOs and uh, uh, other uh, governments who are providing food they are giving double distribution you know, 
to uh, reduce the exposure of uh, the claims for uh, for the COVID infection. But apart from this, the government also uh, preparing the food bank. Great, thank you, Tigas. Um, yeah, over to Mahmoud. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it is always challenging uh, to uh, targeting uh, in such scenario. But as I mentioned, um, that government approach is uh, to combine new benefit with the existing uh, expansion of existing program. So what uh, we observe in Bangladesh that um, government has identified uh, the beneficiary who are out of uh, social safety net program by uh, using technology. And uh, this time we have observed that government is using um, the national identity number database and also using the mobile registration information um, so that the people who are uh, out of uh, social safety net coverage uh, can be reached uh, with this process. But having said that, I think it is also important to um, uh, connect with other uh, social safety net uh, program as well. Like government is also um, implementing open market sale uh, programs. So that's also a part uh, that where uh, large people who are out of uh, this process can also access to food um, uh, during this critical moment. Yeah, thank you, over to you then. Thanks, Mahmoud. Um, uh, Jessica, I have a question for you. It's coming in from uh, Dr. Phil Church, um, based in the United States. He says, um, in terms of COVID-19 coping mechanisms, um, he's wondering about uh, asset sales and distressed asset sales and whether uh, we're seeing that and whether we should, you know, that should be a concern. So in particular, do we know whether households are selling productive assets? Um, and what do we anticipate in terms of impact on long-run household resilience as a result? Sure, that's a great question. So as I shared in the graphs showed, we see, given our preliminary evidence, that the sale of assets is in fact the most common coping mechanism that households report. So among households that are losing income, which is almost all households, about 40% of them report that they have sold assets. We do not know uh, in this survey what type of asset that was. It could be a, a durable good, but I think it's likely, especially given that these are very poor households, that many are selling productive assets because they're unlikely to have substantial stocks of household durables or other goods that, that would be sold. So I think it's absolutely true that it raises uh, really important questions about long-term effects. On the one hand, selling assets may mean that households can buffer themselves from severe declines in consumption. That's particularly important for households with young children, where a short-term decline in consumption could have very significant effects for growth. On the other hand, it may mean that uh, there are pathways for accumulating further assets and kind of a positive income trajectory in the coming months may be uh, severely limited. I think that's a effect we're hoping to track more once we're able to conduct a larger scale survey. And I think it'll also be a challenge for programmers once kind of longer term, less emergency programming can resume to attempt to address any kind of asset deaccumulation that's happened during this COVID shock. Back to you, Dan. 
Uh, great, thank you, Jessica. So uh, my next question, the next question is for Akter. Um, the question is from Bele Mengesha uh, from FAO in Ethiopia. Um, but I, I'm gonna ask you to comment for, for your work in Bangladesh. So most social protection interventions focus on rural areas. Is there any experience or plan for urban poor social protection in the midst of the pandemic? Yes, you know, there are over 100 uh, social safety net programs in Bangladesh, and only two or three programs are implemented in urban areas. So the urban uh, poor are mostly left behind. So there, you know, uh, I think uh, I would say that, uh, you know, one of the most promising programs for urban uh, poor would be to introduce a school feeding program in the secondary schools. And now uh, what uh, Mr. Mamunur Rashid from WFP explained, the school feeding program, and that is for primary uh, schools. In Bangladesh does not have a school feeding program in secondary schools. So uh, there is an advantage uh, that uh, secondary schools are, you know, there are separate schools for boys and separate schools for girls primary schools are co-ed. So if this uh, school feeding program can be implemented in uh, uh, particularly in urban areas, but also in, in rural areas where uh, nutritious uh, school meals could be, could be provided uh, to these adolescent girls. And we know that adolescent uh, nutrition is very important. Now, I would also suggest that go one, step further to uh, add a cash transfer, targeted cash transfer with the you know, school feeding program, targeted to the you know, girls from poorer families. So that way it, uh, uh, you know, and, and that should be conditional, conditional uh, upon not getting married while uh, they are in school. So uh, we see that in secondary schools, particularly, uh, girls' dropout rate is very high. And the main reason is they drop out because they are married off by their uh, families. So if uh, this cash transfer also gradually improves by grade, higher grades will get higher uh, amount of transfers, then that can uh, 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 you now contribute to this preventing of uh, early marriage of girls. We know that uh, early marriage is a big problem in Bangladesh, particularly for the poor families. And early marriage is related, related to uh, uh, you know, early childbirth, and that in turn actually you know, uh, uh, gives this uh, result is uh, low birth weight children, which is the main cause of uh, stunting. So, uh, you know, through this uh, type of program, safety net can actually contribute to some extent to reduce this uh, early marriage. We have already seen due to COVID-19, there are evidences that families are pressurizing their, you know, girls, particularly teenage girls to get married. And there are several instances that many poor families, you know, the girls are getting married uh, at, at uh, you know, teenage so so this type of uh, i think social pro protection uh, uh, has a 
role to play in that respect. Thank you. Thank you, Akhtar. I appreciate it. Um, I... Hugo, do you yes. mind if I chime in on that question as well? No, that's excellent, Hugo. Please go ahead. Okay. No, I think it's, uh, it's really an important one. And uh, I think there are a number of long-term trends that really point to how poverty is urbanizing, uh, on how um, uh, urbanization in contexts like Africa and elsewhere um, is uh, unfolding rapidly but without, without generating the high productivity jobs that we have seen historically elsewhere, which in part explains the proliferation of informal settlements. And overall, we haven't yet seen a, um, a, a, a shift in, uh, in social protection, in extending coverage, building on the lessons from rural areas, also to urban areas and to the urban poor, um, and this is something that I think the, the current crisis has shed light on, on how uh, on the, the, the so-called miss the middle and how large shares of informal workers that don't qualify for social assistance but cannot afford social insurance either um, tend to be wildly in, in urban areas, rural areas as well, but in urban areas their, their vulnerabilities are really exposed through, through the crisis. So I think there is a big agenda there. We counted about uh, uh, 24 programs uh, a few years ago that operate in urban areas in terms of safety nets, about 13 now. And, uh, um, but there is a big agenda on, um, on adapting to urban areas. Replicating rural approaches won't work. Uh, countries that have tried it, Mexico, Colombia, uh, even parts of India, so that really you need to think of what is a household um, how do you reach uh, mobile populations? How do you make a program attractive to people that face high opportunity costs? Um, so, and how you connect that with housing um, and urban jobs. So there is a big agenda there. And I'll, I think it's one of the key takeaways from this crisis, actually to strengthen the role of social protection in urban areas. Uh, Ugo, thanks very much. I appreciate you coming in and um, encourage the other speakers at any point to do the same. That's really helpful. Um, Mamoun, I'm going to bring this question to you. The, um, the question is from uh, Mahedi Hassan at USAID in Bangladesh. How can we engage private sector, the private sector in social safety net programs? So I wonder from your experience at the World Food Program, whether you can comment on whether WFP has uh, tried to work with the private sector, whether you're other, aware of other initiatives to try to um, take advantage of public sector linkages. Thanks. Yeah, um, thank you, Dan. And um, thank you, maybe for your interest. I think there are a lot of opportunity uh, to work with private sector in social safety net. Particularly, I mean, if you uh, look at both the cash and also the food transfer process, in both process, private sector has a very important role. Uh, currently, a uh, number of mobile financial agency who are engaged in uh, disseminating and transferring money from uh, government to uh, beneficiary. Uh, so that's a area where there is a lot of works need to do. I mean, for an example, I mean, in such COVID situations, uh, the women usually come to the uh, mobile financial service providers to receive cash grants. So that's also an opportunity if private sector also includes some 
COVID or some health or some nutrition messages during um, uh, this uh, this type of transmission, so that beneficiary really get a uh, number of information from that source. On the uh, food supply, I think uh, from um, from uh, production to uh, marketing and uh, transportation, there are uh, opportunities that private sector can engage, can add significant value uh, into the food system process, and also uh, support in um, fortification of, uh, of, of many foods as well. Like for example, uh, WFP is working with um, many private sector uh, in fortification of rice uh, currently, and a number of agency is collaborating with government and WFP to uh, fortified um, uh, staple uh, rice, um, oil, and those has been evaluated elements uh, from private sector point of view. So yeah, Akhtarbhai, if you would like to add um, points, please. No, I think uh, you have covered it very well. Uh, uh, particularly this uh, fortified rice that is being distributed in one of the largest uh, programs, safety net programs in Bangladesh, it's called Food Friendly Program. And uh, so that, you know, the entire rice is uh, uh, nutrient fortified and that is produced by the uh, private sector. So I think, uh, you know, of course, uh, their private sector also can play a big role in terms of like, you know, uh, packaging and transporting and uh, things like that. So I think uh, they have a big role, but you have covered it very well, Mamun. Uh, thanks, Mamun. Thank you, Akhtar, as well. Um, Ugo, I'm going to come back to you. Uh, so the question is from uh, Masood Lazreg, a researcher from Algeria. Uh, please, how can the how can export restrictions affect food security in net importing countries during the pandemic? I think there is such a such a wealth of expertise in IFRI for uh, for that question. Um, um, so um, I think there is. Uh, thank you, Masu, for the question. I think there is uh, uh, historically a um, a tendency. Uh, to um, uh, you know restrict uh, restrict trade um, in uh, in these uh, in times of crisis. Um, so something that we have seen uh, in the past uh, uh, in 2009 and 10, um, and uh, and something that is generally not very much <laughs> recommended um, uh, as a, as a practice. Um, and there are countries uh, that um, uh, you know heavily heavily depend. On um, on uh, on imports, especially if we think of some of the more uh, fragile states, I'm thinking of uh, even war-torn uh, Yemen and other very fragile contexts that, uh, and parts of West Africa that heavily depend on uh, on uh, on imported uh, on imported food. So uh, getting at least the some of the basic uh, supplies uh, still functioning, I think it's uh, it's very important. Um, Martin Ravalli and uh, uh, wrote about it um, uh, a month or so ago, and uh, probably you know it's it's one of the factors that may uh, may really help in avoiding what it might be a really a risk of uh, of severe food insecurity and food security crisis, sometimes even leading to famines. So 
making sure that the food at least can move and that at the same time uh, injecting uh, uh, more per purchasing power uh, to, to people, including through social protection, that um, increases effective demand and that uh, um, conveys those market signals that, that help markets still uh, operate and ensure some basic uh, functionality would be, would be, I think, an important part of the response. Thank you, Ugo. I appreciate it. Um, we have just a little bit more, just a few more minutes for questions. I'm going to come to Tigist. Uh, Tigist, what do you expect would happen to the food security status of PSNP participants if the COVID-19 crisis continues for many more months? And how could the SPEAR project further support the participants? Um, we are anticipating that if uh, the COVID-19 effect is continue for longer period, uh, there may be a, a number of households will be affected and uh, the number of uh, the PSNP uh, clients or non-PSNP clients is a, uh, added on PSNP clients. So the expansion of this program as well as uh, extending uh, the, uh, the, 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 the extension of the uh, transfer months. For example, for uh, public work, we are giving only six months. Uh, but if the problem is continue, then uh, the, the, the government as well as the uh, SPEAR has to think of expansion and also covering year-round uh, transfer for those uh, are PSNP clients and for those of affected currently newly, they are, uh, the government as well as the NGO and other partners should think of to cover uh, those uh, uh, affected people. Uh, great. Thank you, Tigist. Uh, Jessica, I'm going to bring the last question to you. And um, this is a question from Gamal Alim. Uh, and Gamal has said the coronavirus lockdown has affected, uh, negatively affected food supply chains. Um, and so the question is about whether how cash transfers are effective, um, how effective are cash transfers compared to food on food availability and food security? given some concerns about accessibility. So I wonder if you could just comment, um, this is another question on cash and food transfers, but knowing what we know about interruptions in, um, in activity in Ethiopia, could you comment on maybe what the SPEAR project should be thinking about as they go forward about the balance of cash and food transfers? Sure, I think that's an important question. Many countries, including Ethiopia, have suspended or limited markets, in which case even households that access cash may not be able to spend it effectively or easily. Uh, going forward, I think it will be important for SPEAR to track what types of market activities are able to continue and at what scale. It may be very different if you're looking for a market at which to sell or purchase an animal source food or a larger asset compared to a market where staple foods could be purchased. It may be that markets for staples are less affected because they're more frequent or they're smaller, in which case the implications for cash transfers might be uh, less severe than, than we fear. 
but given um, more granular data about market operation and also prices, we would be able to really have a better sense of whether the effectiveness of cash transfers has been greatly diminished, such that they're perhaps not an effective modality at this time, or whether households are still able to use a cash transfer to meet you know, immediate short-term needs. Back to you, Dan. Great. Uh, thank you, Jessica. So um, we've reached the end of our Q&A session, and I want to I thank everyone for participating in the discussion and for a large number of questions coming in. Uh, apologies to those who sent questions that I wasn't able to get to. Uh, I think I reached only about half of the questions that we received. So I do appreciate the interest and in everyone's um, great ideas and, and contributions to the discussion. So I'd like to give each of our speakers 20 seconds for their sort of final takeaway messages. I'll go in reverse order. So um, just passing from one to the next, we'll start with Jessica, and then Tigas, then Akhtar, uh, Mamoun, and then Ugo. And then Ugo after you, it'll come back to me. So Jessica? Great, thank you, Dan. So our preliminary evidence suggests that households in rural Ethiopia are facing significant livelihood shocks due to COVID-19. They're coping with those shocks by relying on social safety nets as well as existing savings and existing assets. So it will be very important to track the longer term effects of these coping mechanisms on households' welfare, nutrition, and their broader resilience. Next, I'll pass it to Tigist. Tigas, you are muted. Uh, in summary, uh, the effect or the implication of COVID-19 in PSNP household as well as for other uh, unrecognized uh, un, 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 un force may be uh, higher and uh, uh, this, uh, if the, if the effect, if the, uh, disease is going to be a longer, taking longer period, and better preparation is needed uh, from both the uh, uh, NGO as well as the government side to respond uh, for the need of those force. And the other, the other point I wanted to make here is the implication of this COVID not, uh, now uh, it's only uh, uh, recognize the early effect. So, the adoption may, may uh, need to cover larger uh, portion of the uh, implementation component. So uh, the government as well as our SPEAR program has to revisit and see to uh, respond uh, and make more modification. Thank you. Thank you, Tigas. And now we go to Akhtar. Uh, thank you, Dan. In Bangladesh, we must consider innovative approaches to uh, protect food security and nutrition during COVID-19. This can include distribution of food vouchers, which we do not have, and combining safety net transfers with nutrition knowledge. Bangladesh achieved the fastest drop in child stunting among developing countries. But this progress is now at risk. So we must urgently rethink our approaches. What do you, Mamun? Thank you, Akhtar Bhai. Um, 
I think uh, while protecting um, nutrition remain a challenge, uh, we continue to explore innovative approaches to safely and effectively prevent malnutrition, particularly among women and children. There are many opportunities for the government, private sector, and development partners to work together to fight against this global pandemic. And use of technology, as I mentioned, to connect, reach out, and improve the nutrition of the most vulnerable during this critical time. So thank you, and over to you, Ogo. Um, thank you. 60% um, of cash transfers programs are new programs introduced for the crisis, mostly for three months. And what this says is that these programs are filling some structural gaps, both at the bottom of the distribution as well as at the middle of it. These programs help, but my message is that they are a temporary solution to a structural problem and that we need to shift social protection somewhat to a new equilibrium in a way that addresses those structural issues. And this will serve uh, countries well in normal times, as well as establishing uh, a pipeline for crisis, crisis support during pandemics and other crises. Thanks very much, Hugo. I want to thank everyone for joining us for this important discussion. Please visit IFPRI's COVID-19 Spotlight page at ifpri.org, where you can find related research, analyses, and blogs. Or just Google IFPRI and COVID-19, and you'll find a lot of information there. Keep well and stay safe, everyone. Thank you, and goodbye. <laughs>